What Did You Expect? This is the name of a book by a brother named Paul Tripp on the subject of marriage. Uh, The book's subtitle is Redeeming the Realities of Marriage. And uh, the basic premise is that in marriage, uh, you have two sinners who are coming together to start a family. What did you expect? Uh, There's going to be certainly uh, selfishness. There's going to be baggage. People are going to have to say they're sorry. Uh, But of course, Tripp goes on to discuss how having the right expectations for marriage can bring couples to properly appreciate the importance of things like grace and love and empathy in marriage and can help them apply healthy principles so that they can have a fruitful and successful marriage. Well, I want to suggest that the same question, what did you expect, might be put to Christians who find themselves facing various hardships and trials in their lives and are somewhat surprised when they discover that they have the same human weaknesses as everyone else, even those who are not Christians. Uh, Perhaps they thought they'd be somehow immune to the various forms of human weakness and frailty that are common to so many. But of course, we know that... uh, Even though God gives the gift of new birth and faith and regeneration, uh, to those to whom he gives this gift, uh, those people don't cease to be human. And a new creature in Christ, yes, raised together to newness of life with the Lord Jesus, yes. But superhuman, no. The children of God are human. Uh, They experience all the accompanying weaknesses and frailties that come with our humanity. It's important that we recognize that Christian experience is lived out in the context of human experiences. Christians are just as familiar with human weakness and frailty as anyone else. Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 28, there he invites those to come to him. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's not an invitation only to those who are outside of Christ. It's an invitation to Christians also. Christians are weary and heavy laden. And they too must come continually to Christ in that posture of brokenness and neediness. Many Christians feel in their humanity weakness and frailty. They feel overwhelmed by difficulties and hardships. They feel broken by life circumstances. Many Christians feel overrun by certain temptations, feel fatigued from spiritual warfare. They feel severely burdened by the evil and suffering that is present in the world. They feel anxious about the future. Some Christians feel emotionally out of control. Many Christians are even afraid to die. Christians sink under some form of melancholy or depression. Many Christians fear walking through certain trials. Many Christians feel lonely and isolated due to broken relationships, and many Christians can feel misunderstood. Some Christians are sad and low and discouraged and are not even able to identify the reasons why. Christian experience at many points overlaps with human experience human frailty and human weakness because we as Christians are in fact human. 
We who are the Lord's people have all found ourselves in these sorts of frames at different times in our lives. But what I've just described, uh, Christians who feel at various points low, discouraged, broken, depressed, scared, lonely, afraid, weak, frail, and finite. I wonder what does our experience of these things as God's people, what do they generate in the heart of God? What does God experience? How does He respond when He looks on the human weaknesses of His people? And depending on where you are in the Bible, you might answer that question in a number of different ways. I want us to look this morning at the answer that's provided in Psalm 103, particularly verses 13 and 14, which teaches us that God's response to our experiences of human weakness and frailty is to feel compassion. If you would, please look with me again at Psalm 103, verses 13 through 18. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. And His righteousness to children's children. To those who keep His covenant. And remember to do His commandments. Psalm 103, which Pastor Ben read a moment ago in its entirety, is... Essentially a prayer of praise or a song of praise. Uh, The psalmist David is ascribing to God praise for those things that are true about him. And in the Psalms 22 verses, there's not a single petition. That is to say, David never asked God to do anything. He's just celebrating and meditating upon what God has done for him and for his people. Now it would be wonderful if we could consider the psalm in its entirety. But I want this to be a short message. And so we're just going to consider verses 13 and 14, which says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are as dust. At three points this morning. Number one, as a father. Number two, shows compassion. Number three, to his children. Uh, You kids studying English grammar. That subject... Verb, object. As a father, subject. Shows compassion, verb, to his children. Object. First of all, consider with me, as a father. David, leading up to verse 13, has been describing all these wonderful things about God. Some of the most beautiful language in all the Bible to describe who God is, and particularly who he is in relationship to to his people. And midway through the psalm, in verse 13, David goes searching for an illustration. He goes searching for a metaphor, some sort of picture. And what is the picture that David lands on in his meditation? It is the way of a father with his children. That's the picture he wants to put in the minds of those who would read this psalm. How does God relate to his people as a father to his children? Now, it's a matter of no small importance to appreciate that the text doesn't come out and say that God is, in fact, our Father. Or rather, God is compared to a Father. 
Uh, The Old Testament saints, like David, did not customarily think of God as their father. Uh, The truth that God is, in fact, the father of believers is primarily a New Testament revelation. Now, that doesn't mean that God wasn't the father of those Old Testament saints, those like David. But it does mean that the truth that God is father is revealed most clearly and shines most brightly and is applied most forcibly when we get to the New Testament where we're said to be adopted by God by virtue of our union with God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, this side of the cross, we go back and we read Psalm 103 and we see David comparing our relationship to God as that of a child to a father and we think, isn't that just right? Because we know this side of the cross, what it cost to bring us by virtue of adoption into the family of God and secure that relationship of us as children to a father. But I want to ask this question. What is David doing with this image? What is he trying to get across to us when he says the relationship of those who fear God with God is like that of a child to a father? He doesn't have the epistle to 1 John in his mind. He doesn't have the gospel of John in his mind. He's not thinking about Romans 8 or Ephesians 1. That's thousand years later. What's David trying to do with this image? I think he's trying to communicate two things at least. Two things in comparing God to a father. The first thing is to say that I think David is trying to show that as there is a great scale of difference between a father and a small child in terms of power, in terms of intelligence, in terms of knowledge and in terms of competence, so there is a great difference between God and us. The the Father is superior in the relationship. He has power. He has ability. He has knowledge. He has wisdom. There's a scale of difference between a father and a child. And I think David wants us to at least appreciate we're not peers with God. He's the Father in the relationship. And, And we're the children. And there's a sense in which His concerns and His person and His being and all that comes into His mind is just so large and so far outside our own little experience as His children. In our home, every day at 7.30, Dominic gets his yogurt. He knows, as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, yogurt will appear before my face at 7.30 in the morning. Now, the variety of that yogurt might change. It'll probably be some flavor of berry or something like that. And if dad's serving the yogurt, there might be sprinkled some chocolate chips in there. But the yogurt's going to be there. It's a fixed reality in his world. Now, he has no concept of what it took to put that yogurt before his face day after day. He doesn't know what I know as his dad that I go to a job every day and that that job pays me money and that a portion of that money is taxed and a portion is tied to the work of God's church and then a portion of that money is appropriated to pay for various bills in the home and then the rest of that money we use to buy what are called groceries and see see there's this thing called a grocery store we go there we buy goods and those goods have been stocked by a variety of different producers and suppliers and one of those suppliers is someone who made this yogurt out of various ingredients. And then there was this other manufacturer that produced these little plastic cups in which the yogurt goes. And and some scientists or nutritionists somewhere posted figures on the back of the yogurt that tell you 
what's inside the yogurt so that we can know it's healthy. And someone somewhere invented a refrigerator, and those refrigerators are stocked somewhere in the world, and we purchased one of those refrigerators. And we got to keep the yogurt in the refrigerator because if it's not kept in the refrigerator, it can go bad. None of that has occurred to our little boy when that yogurt appears before his face at 7.30 in the morning because my world, our world, is his parents just sort of outside the scope of his experience. His main concern is that the yogurt is there and that it came from a father and a mother who love him. That's something like what our relationship with God is like. He's so big, his concerns are so great, and he's so much more knowledgeable and wise than we are, so much more competent than we are to handle all these various concerns. And all we know is is our experience of his goodness and of his providence in our lives. David is acknowledging a scale of difference between us and God. Now that said, I don't think that's really like the very heart of the image. That's one of the things communicated. Superiority of a father to a child. But what is at the heart of the picture It's not just that God is so much greater than us, but surely what David is trying to emphasize is the fundamental tenderness and sweetness and warmth that characterizes the relationship between the Lord and His people. What is God's relationship to His weak and frail people like? Well, at least in this context, He doesn't say, well, it can be compared to a slave with his master. That would have been an image available to David in the ancient world. He doesn't say it's like a boss with his employee. He doesn't say it's like a a commander in the military with a lowly private. When David goes fishing for an image, he goes to the most tender and warm and affectionate image he could find, and that is the image of a father with his child. Warmth and tenderness are at the heart of the picture. Now, lest someone think I'm importing into the ancient notions of fatherhood, post-enlightenment, modern notions of fatherhood, encourage you to look at the text itself. See, see, am I taking our 21st century notion of fatherhood as something warm and tender and maybe a little bit mushy and just reading that into the text? No, I don't think so. Because what is it that David highlights about the relationship of a father with his children? He says, as a father shows compassion as he cares for the child. That, that facet of a father's character and nature, that's to be innate. Fathers throughout time are to be nurturing and tender and loving toward their children. Jesus uh, uses a similar image when he says, as a father delights to give good gifts to his children, so the father delights to give the Holy Spirit to all those who ask. And David is in essence saying, The way a child would think about a strong, large-hearted, warm and tender father. This is how we can think about the Lord. That's point number one, as a father. Secondly, consider with me, shows compassion. As a father shows compassion. And I'm really asking here, what is at the heart of the Lord's compassion for his people? What is his compassion? How is the Lord's compassion expressed? And how does Psalm 103 in particular open up this idea of the Lord's compassion? Well, there's at least a few things we can say about the Lord's compassion, a few ways in which it's described in this psalm. 
If we're speaking about God's compassion for His people, we can certainly speak of His mercy and forgiveness toward our sins. Psalm 103 contains some of the most beautiful language in all the Bible to describe God's lavish forgiveness of the sins of His people. So we read in verse 3 that God is the one who pardons all your iniquities. Verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verse 10, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. You sinners here who have been saved by the grace of God, you'll never get what you deserve. Not a glorious thought. He doesn't deal with us in the way we've dealt with Him. The way we deal with our fellow men. He doesn't deal with us even with the way we deal with our children. We're so often annoyed and angry and intemperate with our kids. He's not that way toward us. He doesn't deal with us according to our iniquities. And then you get to verse 12. And I'm not sure in the English language there can ever be a more pleasant arrangement of words to convey something so beautiful. You know verse 12? As far as the east is from the west. Not a profound thought. Those, those directions by which we measure distance. As far as the east is from the west. So far as He removed our transgressions from us. Is that not a function of God's compassion for sinners? Charles Spurgeon said this, If sin be removed so far, then we may be sure that the scent, the trace, the very memory of it must be entirely gone. You have things in your past that you wish would be forgotten. The Lord keeps no record of wrongs. He removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Spurgeon says, if this be the distance of its removal, there is no shade of fear of its ever being brought back again. Even Satan himself could not achieve such a task. The Lord alone could remove sin at all, and he has done it in a godlike fashion, making a final sweep of all our transgressions. This is one of the functions of God's compassion. He's merciful and forgiving toward us. We might also speak, if we're asking how is God's compassion expressed, we might speak of His fatherly care for us. His providence in our lives. And this is certainly talked about in Psalm 103, verses 3 through 5. He's the God who pardons all our iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. My friend, God cares about you. He redeems your life from the pit. He heals your diseases. He satisfies you with good things. But now I think, this is true in Psalm 103, I think it's true generally in the Bible, that the main idea that is in mind when we speak of God's compassion is His gracious disposition toward our weaknesses and failures. What is God's compassion? Most narrowly, it's God's gracious disposition, His gracious posture, His gracious standing, His gracious relationship toward particularly not our strengths, 
Not our virtues, but our weaknesses and our failures. And that's what verse 13 and 14 said. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. That word knows is the word yada, to know. It's a word that's used in Genesis when it says that Adam knew his wife Eve. The word yada, the type of knowledge that's in mind there, is not just like information accumulation. So you tell me X number of people, I've been diagnosed with COVID-19, I retain that information, and now I know it. This sort of knowledge encompasses so much more than that. It's why some of the translations read, for he knows how we are made. Or he knows of what we are made. It's in some ways like the knowledge a car manufacturer might have of an automobile. He built the car. You don't need to tell him about it. He knows every single part that went into forming that automobile. But even that analogy is insufficient because that's an inanimate object. The idea is that God made us and knows us perfectly, knows us in detail, knows the number of hairs on our heads, knows the limit of our being, knows how many heartbeats we'll have, knows what makes us tick, knows our motivations, knows our deepest heart desires and our thoughts as we drift off to sleep at night. He knows our frame. He remembers or he is mindful that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. In other words, it's fragile. It's fleeting. Friends, this is us. Weak and frail. Tired. Burdened. Broken. Distressed. Fatigued. Emotional, out of control, and overwhelmed. And what is it, if you're looking carefully at the text, what is it that actually draws out of God this compassionate response? It is the existence of our weaknesses, it's the presence of our frailties and failures. The Lord shows compassion to his children, for he knows what they're made of. Like, like a parent been spending the day out with their child and they've not been able to eat lunch when they normally do and the child is hot, missed their nap time and is hungry and the child just sort of breaks down. You have compassion for that child. He, he's a child. She's a child. Needs to eat and sleep and hasn't been able to do that. And breaking down. That's the picture here. He knows our frame, and as he contemplates our weaknesses and our failures, what emerges, not annoyance, not frustration, not chastising, God's compassion comes to bear upon us. John Calvin says, The more wretched and despicable our condition is, the more inclined is God to show mercy. For the remembrance that we are clay and dust is enough to incite him to do us good. You feel like I haven't slept well in a long time and I just feel weary and run down. I'm not myself. I feel so fatigued. God has compassion for you. 
there's something in the future that's troubling you. Hasn't happened yet, but you, you just feel this sort of uncontrollable anxiety and it's afflicting you and it's coming on you. You didn't beckon it to come. And you know what God says in His Word, but you just feel anxious because you're human. God has compassion on you. You've been walking with the Lord for 30, 40, 50 years. You know that your days are numbered. Maybe you're in the fourth quarter. And as you contemplate your final days, as you contemplate death, you're embarrassed to say, you're troubled to say, you just feel a little bit afraid. My friend, God understands. There's compassion on you. You can imagine a Christian woman. Uh, She has some sort of chronic illness. Causes her to become run down more easily than most. Her constitution isn't quite as strong. She feels fatigued more easily. And she has a very busy life. A lot of challenges. She and her husband have never had much money. She's got three kids. They're all now in their teenage years. Some are approaching college. They're wondering how they're going to make it work. Husband has just gotten news at work that his job is in jeopardy and he needs to work overtime if he's going to make it work and prove his worth at work. But see, that husband has been feeling sick lately. And it was just a week ago that you were in the doctor's office with your husband and you learned that he might have, might have some rare form of cancer that is inoperable. And you're waiting to hear the diagnosis. And then just three days ago, your youngest, who is 14, got put on probation at school because he stole something. And you're embarrassed by that. And you're trying not to be too hard on him. But you are trying to get this across to him. You can't steal, can't act that way. And then yesterday, you had a phone call with your mother, who's very upset with you because you don't feel that the family is going to be able to afford to fly up to mom and dad's house for Thanksgiving this year. And she's upset with you. Surely you can make this work, but money's tight. Who knows what's happening with this diagnosis? You feel fatigued and tired because you're not always well yourself. But you're bearing up under it. You're keeping it together. Oh, and by the way, there's a global pandemic going on during all of this. And here's this Christian woman. She's holding it together. She's bearing up. She's praying. She's rehearsing scripture to himself. She's not withdrawn from church. And here she is. And she's in the kitchen one morning. Trying to serve breakfast for her kids. And a glass drops to the floor. And the glass shatters. And then it's like all the weight of all these circumstances just come over her and she breaks down and she just sobs like she's never sobbed before. Friends, God knew that she had reached her limit and He knew that it would take the glass falling. And as that glass shattered, so she would shatter in a million pieces as it were. What is he, disappointed with her? Frustrated with her? He loves her. He knows her frame. 
He knows what she's made of. He knows that she's human. That she too can so easily break under pressure. What's his disposition toward her? He has compassion on her. He cares for her. He loves her. A Presbyterian pastor in the 19th century named W.S. Plumer. In commenting on those words. By the way, I'm not going to get to my third point. I can see that now. We're coming to the end here, okay? It's Presbyterian pastor W.S. Plumer. Commenting on Psalm 103, verse 14. That line, he knows our frame. This is what Plumer says about God's knowledge of us. This knowledge of God embraces our constitutional temperament, the feebleness of our understanding, the strength of our fears, the shattered state of our nerves, the violence of temptations, our readiness to sink into melancholy, and everything calling for tender compassions. There's some older language in there. It says that God knows our constitutional temperament. That means He knows our bodies. If you just speak of their constitution, that was, that was their physical body. He knows our bodies. knows what we're made of. He knows the feebleness of our understanding. Like we don't get it sometimes. Your parents who homeschool or parents who do homework with the children. You've been there with your kids, right? Six-eighths plus one-fourth, son... Honey equals what? You get the blank stare. You've gone over this a million times. But you know it's a child. They might not get complex fractions just yet. They might forget their multiplication tables. God understands the feebleness of our mind. The strength of our fears. The shattered state of our nerves. You know what that means? We talk about our nerves... We don't really use that word a lot, at least in the way they would have used that word in the 19th century. Uh, Maybe if you've read Pride and Prejudice or watched film adaptations of Pride and Prejudice, what's the mom always saying? Oh, my poor nerves. Uh, It's like, oh, my my feelings. You young people would talk about being in in my feelings. Is that what you say? I'm in my feelings? that's, That's the old version of that. The shattered state of our nerves. That is, my emotions are a little bit out of control. God understands that. His knowledge embraces our shattered nerves. The violence of temptations. Have you ever experienced temptation like seizing you violently? Laying hold of you. God understands that. He knows how we're made. Our readiness to sink into melancholy. That's an old word for depression. Christians get depressed. Christians struggle with depression. And some of us have what could be called a readiness to sink into melancholy. And Plumer says all of these things, and indeed every other weakness and frailty connected to our humanity, calls forth, invites, and indeed receives God's compassion. The last point was going to be to his children. And I was going to talk about what it means to be God's children. But I should draw to a close here. The simple point was 
going to be to talk about how weak and frail we really are as God's children, and particularly to talk about what it means to be God's child and that we belong to him. We have a special privileged relationship with him as his children. But I want to move to a close here. The way in which we know that God is compassionate toward us is because he's revealed it to us in his word. Because there are passages like Psalm 103. The Psalm 103 verses 13 and following is not the most convincing proof we have of the compassionate heart of God. Christian, how do you know? How do you know most surely, most clearly that God is compassionate toward you? It's because God sent forth his only begotten son who came to reveal the heart of the father to us. And when Jesus came, he said things like, Come to me, you who are weak and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. I'm meek and humble in heart. I learned recently that in all of the Gospels, there's only one verse in the Bible that references Jesus' heart. Lots of verses reference Jesus' body. Lots of verses talk about Jesus' words. Only once does Jesus speak about his own heart. And when he does so, He says that his heart is gentle and lowly. It's meek, humble, accessible, inviting, open to people who are broken down by life, who are weary and heavy laden. When Jesus looked on the crowds in Matthew 19, verses 36 and following, what is it said of Jesus there? He had compassion on them. Because they were distressed and dispirited, helpless and harassed, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus says to Philip in John 14, those who have seen me have seen the Father. And the author of the Hebrews tells us that one of the things Jesus was doing in his earthly ministry was developing sympathy with us. It's one thing for God to make us and to know how we're formed. It's another thing for him to walk a mile in our shoes, to come in human flesh and experience human weakness and frailty. Jesus did that for us. And even though he was sinless and managed to go through life himself without sinning, without breaking God's law, did not cultivate in him an attitude of superiority and frustration with us. Rather, it made him sympathetic to us, ready to receive us. Now he invites us to come boldly to him so that we can find grace and help in time of need. Look, I don't have a particular point of application this morning. But I heard someone say once that some sermons should just be preached to encourage people to keep loving and believing in God. I know that lots of us are feeling human weaknesses and frailties. God's Word teaches, and God's Son convincingly demonstrated that God has a heart of compassion toward His people. And to those who are not God's people, who are outside of Christ... God still, in some sense, takes a compassionate disposition toward you in that He invites you to partake of His compassion, of His mercy and forgiveness in Christ. Would it be a sweet thing to know the words of verse 12 of this psalm? That as far as the east is from the west, 
so far would God move, remove your transgressions from you. To have your sins taken away and for them to be remembered no more. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you're just too good to be true. In light of what we know about our sinfulness, in light of so much of the ugliness we see in this world, were we in your shoes, it's not how we would have acted. And yet, Lord, your kindness, your grace, your mercy, your compassion, your large-heartedness, it's also overwhelming to us. What a privilege it is to be the children of God. What a privilege it is in the midst of all our weaknesses, encumbered by all of our sins, all our disappointments and all our failures, to know that you're not angry with us, but that you love us and that you care for us, that your heart is compassionate toward us. Bring more sinners here under the umbrella of that compassion. Give to us more the experience of that compassion in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.